You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, and welcome to Canada's Court, brought to you by the Criminal Lawyers Association. My name is Sukraj Hundle. I am the principal lawyer at SH Law Firm, practicing criminal defense law in the Greater Toronto Area. In this episode, you will hear the oral submissions from Her Majesty the Queen versus Craig Pope. On September 7, 2017, Mr. Pope, with Mr. Collins, had been driving around in a taxi to various locations in the city from about 11 a.m. until the mid-afternoon. When they arrived at the scene, Mr. Pope was in the front passenger seat and Mr. Collins in the back. A man who was in a nearby van approached the taxi and passed some money to Mr. Collins through the window. Mr. Pope told Mr. Collins that he owed him $60. This led to an altercation. Both men got out of the taxi and began to fight. Both were throwing punches until Mr. Collins fell to the ground clutching his stomach. While there were witnesses, no one saw the knife or exactly what happened. Mr. Pope returned to the taxi and told the driver to run him over. Instead, the taxi driver drove off with Mr. Pope, leaving Mr. Collins lying in the street. One of the witnesses, a registered nurse, lent assistance to Mr. Collins, who had been stabbed once in the lower abdomen. The wound, which was about 11 centimeters deep, punctured the abdominal aorta. Mr. Collins was transported to a hospital but died from a loss of blood. Mr. Pope was charged with second-degree murder for which manslaughter is an included offense. Following a trial by jury, the respondent Craig Pope was convicted of second-degree murder. A majority of the Court of Appeal allowed Mr. Pope's appeal from conviction and ordered a new trial. In its view, the trial judge erred by failing to properly instruct the jury on the included offense of manslaughter. The majority was of the view that the difference between murder and manslaughter, particularly regarding the question of intent, was not explained with sufficient clarity. In dissent, Justice Goodridge would have dismissed the appeal. The Crown appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against Craig Pope, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Dana Sullivan, for the respondent, Craig Pope, Mark Grushi. Ms. Sullivan. Good morning, Chief Justice and fellow Justices. <clears throat> Today we are asking this court to restore Mr. Pope's conviction for second-degree murder uh, based essentially on the dissenting reasons of Justice Goodridge from the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal. I'd like to give you a little roadmap of my intended oral argument today. Uh, first, we intend to briefly discuss the context of this case, uh, because context matters when you're looking at jury instructions. Uh, second, uh, we intend to discuss how the majority of the Court of Appeal erred in law on how they assessed the instructions and by not considering the position of trial counsel in that assessment. Uh, then we intend to discuss uh, how the jury was properly instructed on manslaughter as a lesser and included offense to murder in the final instructions, the decision tree. And then we'll uh, discuss the answer to the jury's question, um, along with the instructions on after the fact conduct evidence. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with respect to context, um, David Jonathan Collins died from an 11 centimeter deep stab wound to the abdomen uh, that severed his abdominal aorta. At trial, defense called no evidence. Mr. Pope did not testify. The defense tactic taken at trial was that they argued the Crown had not proved that Mr. Pope stabbed Mr. Collins. Identity was a live issue. They argued nobody saw him with a knife. No one saw a stabbing. And all of this should have left the jury with a reasonable doubt. They were trying to get Mr. Pope acquitted of all the charges. And this becomes relevant when you're looking at things like um, uh, the example of manslaughter uh, that uh, Mr. Pope's counsel wanted to have put to the jury. Uh, 
Uh, also, Mr. Pope's experienced trial counsel uh, was actively involved in vetting the jury instructions at every stage of the proceedings. Um, just for the final instructions and the jury, uh, sorry, and the decision tree alone, uh, the transcript is 73 pages of that, um, of the pre-charge screening. And the definition of manslaughter that was used in the instructions and the example of manslaughter that was given to the jury in the answer to the jury's question uh, were recommended by Mr. Pope's experienced trial counsel. Did you think they, they were helpful? I think they they fit with, uh, thank you, Justice Brown. I think they fit with Mr. Pope's um, defense tactic in the sense that the example uh, of manslaughter that went to the jury um, didn't involve an act of stabbing. And they were trying to argue, essentially, the inference was that the client didn't stab Mr. Collins. So I think they were consistent. And we don't, you know, defense counsel has to take instructions from his client. There's been no incompetence of counsel argument made here. We don't know. We can't lift the veil of privilege. So we don't know. But excuse what me for a moment. Your theory was not that this was uh, Mr. Pope hurling himself, or sorry, Mr. Collins hurling himself at uh, Mr. Pope and impaling himself on the knife. That had nothing to do with your case. Your case was that Mr. Pope intentionally stabbed the victim. That's clear. And that was the unlawful act that the jury was left with, right? And if, in fact, they found that, there was only really two possible verdicts left, right? Because self-defense wasn't argued or anything. So two possible verdicts, murder or manslaughter. Is that right? Yes, Justice Okay, Marty. and, and, and So just I'll carry on for a moment and tell you what's troubling me. I don't know, and you can help me out. The jury was clearly confused about murder and manslaughter, right? They asked a question. The answer to it at the end of the day gives them an example of somebody holding up a knife and the victim lunging at it and impaling himself in that, submission, in that, in that scenario. What possible basis does that have in terms of relevance to this case, given your theory? That's what I'm trying to, ha uh, that's what I'm having trouble with. I don't know what, how that could possibly have answered their question. If anything, it would have confused them and sort of said, oh, well, for manslaughter, you know, it only applies if someone lunges at it and causes the problem themselves or gets impaled, which has nothing to do with your theory. Thank you, Justice uh, Muldaver. It had nothing to do with the Crown's theory as far as the Crown's theory was. It was an act of stabbing uh, that caused, unlawful act that caused death. But it was a way, you know, to get to manslaughter based on uh, defense theory that the client didn't intend or didn't actively stab or didn't intend to stab Mr. Pope. Um, and it was the example that Mr. Pope's counsel, very experienced trial counsel, wanted to have before the jury. Um, so it was it was an example of unlawful act manslaughter. Um, and it, it was helpful in that sense. Also, but, but Ms. Sullivan, the, sorry, just before yes? you finish, the, it, it came on the heels of box number four and the question by the jury that they didn't understand the definition of manslaughter. And I don't know what you think of box number four. Your colleague says box number four carries with it an error as to the legal definition of manslaughter. The jury was unsure. The jury asked the question. You're right to say that counsel came up with the example but it seems to me that if there was an error of law, counsel's proposed example doesn't change the fact there was an error of law, regardless of the position that counsel took on that point. Is, is that? There, uh, 
Thank you, uh, Justice Cazero. Uh, box number four did not state fully the two intents that were required for second-degree murder. But when you look at the decision tree as a whole, um, and it is found at uh, tab five of uh, the appellant's condensed book at the last page. Before the jury would have gotten to box four, they would have had to consider boxes one and two and answered those in a yes. And if you answer box one with a yes, that Mr. Pope used a weapon to commit an unlawful act, and box two, that Craig Pope committed an unlawful act with a weapon and caused um, Mr. Collins's death, once you have a yes to those two answers, there's only two results, and acquittal's not an option thereafter. You either find Mr. Pope was guilty of murder because he had the requisite intent, one of them, for second-degree murder, or you find he's guilty of manslaughter. But the two intents that are required to convict someone of second-degree murder were spelled out in boxes 3A and 4A of that decision tree. Can, can I Mr. Ask? Pope... I'm sorry. Finish. Please finish. Sorry about that. Okay. Mr. Pope's counsel agreed at the Court of Appeal that, Mr., that the jury was properly instructed on second-degree murder. The jury found Mr. Pope had the subjective intent for second-degree murder. So... While there was an error in box four because it didn't repeat the instructions in or the intent for second degree murder in boxes three and four, um, it, you know, it couldn't have made a difference to the jury because not only was the intent for murder expressly stated in boxes 3A and 4A, but they were correctly stated throughout the jury instructions from the opening instructions to the final instructions, and even at the beginning of the answer to the jury's question. And the jury didn't have those instructions just given to them orally. They had them in writing as well. So in total, the jury would have been instructed at least five times, even more if you count that it's in writing and orally in the written, uh, sorry, in the opening and final instructions. So they I would have had the correct instructions uh, with respect to the intent for murder, and they couldn't Box four couldn't have made a difference. Okay, so can I just, I understand your position. I think, I think it is that even if the re instructions regarding manslaughter <clears throat> were incomplete, let's say, here the jury didn't get there because they were satisfied um, that the intent for second-degree murder was met, and that was correctly um, described to the jury. But given that the distinction between second-degree and manslaughter rests on intent, and given that there was confusion about intent, I think the the, the uh, position uh, put to you is that confusion on the issue of, of intent is not just isolated to manslaughter then in this case, it's confusion that arises in the context of both, second degree and manslaughter. I mean, the distinction between the two is the, the intent, and if there was confusion around what the intent for manslaughter is, how does that not have an impact on the uh, intent for second degree? I, I, that's the position that's being put to you. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Justice Karatsanis. I think the jury was clearly instructed on the intent for second degree murder. The intent for manslaughter as far as the objective or the, and the mens rea for manslaughter, as far as the objective foreseeability of bodily harm that's neither trivial nor transient, um, ultimately was referenced in the answer to the jury's question when the trial judge explains um, how uh, the example he gave was manslaughter and not murder. And when we look at prior decisions from this court, 
um, in Houghton and, and Miljevec, where the uh, objective fault element of manslaughter was not put to the jury, uh, the convictions for murder were upheld because so long as the defense was left, sorry, so long as manslaughter was left to the jury as a lesser and included offense, the jury remained, it, it had the option to convict on that ground, but chose not to do so because they found the subjective intent for murder. Uh, Ms. Sullivan, I'm sorry, we keep coming back, it seems to me, to this first question. The trial judge made it very clear that the first issue the jury had to decide, and I'm looking at page 57, I guess, of the charge and 87 of the appeal book. Okay. If you could just turn that up. Yep. Or I can, I can just read it to you. It just sets out the Crown's theory. In order to find Craig Pope assaulted David Johnson Collins with a weapon, you must find the following. One, that Craig Pope used the weapon to apply force to D David Jonathan Collins, and two, that Craig Force intentionally applied that force. Now, what does that have to do with great respect to the answer the jury got in terms of murder and manslaughter? We all know that there will be cases where there is an intent to cause bodily harm, but in the circumstances... You know, it's done impulsively without much thought at all about the consequences and so on. And I don't see any of that ever put to the jury here. Nothing. And thank you, Justice Valdaver. But it wasn't put to the jury. And it wasn't put to the jury as a conscious choice by defense counsel. It wasn't put as part of their closing submissions. Well, that, sorry, that may well be, but we, we know that defense counsel, and I, I'm not faulting the judge particularly here at all. Don't misunderstand me. Defense counsel did not raise any of this. In fact, defense counsel was the one that said, this question is fine. You're, the answer to the jury's question is fine. Doesn't raise any of what we're talking about here, about box four. You know, so the trial judge was not getting any help from the defense. I grant you that. But that does not answer whether there was an error in law and a serious error that rendered the, that we would call reversible error, particularly in the face of the jury's question. I, I, I understand your point. Um, but this was a case where defense counsel deliberately chose not to pursue uh, that approach to the defense, they were they were focused on trying to disprove the unlawful act that, or that Mr. Pope had committed the unlawful act, um, and by doing so, I guess they didn't want one would submit maybe they didn't want to bring a contradictory uh, defense approach to the jury for fear that if the jury, you know, um, thought. You know, they had two contradictory uh, offenses or defenses, sorry. You know, both can't be true and they might reject them both and think Mr. Pope had the intent for murder. Um, you know, Mr. Piercy, who was trial counsel for Mr. Pope, was very experienced and that was the approach he decided to take to the trial. Um, and he got the example he wanted. I'll just ask you one more thing, and then I promise no more questions. I don't even think the answer that was given in this case is right as a matter of law, even if you're talking about because it doesn't automatically follow that someone that pulls a knife and someone lunges at it and, and impales themselves, that that's automatically manslaughter. It isn't. There may have been good cause. He may have been justified to pull a knife because he was in fear of death or grievous bodily harm himself? This example doesn't, it, it, it raises more questions than answers in my view, but it certainly, it seems to me with respect, does not answer the concern of the jury based on what they've been told. Just to pick up on that, and, and maybe to echo Justice Karakatsana's question about the distinction between the second-degree murder and the manslaughter. If 
we fell into a scenario that fit box number four. And box number four is problematic. Is it possible that the jury sort of thought, well, manslaughter is not available to me here, so I'm going to fall back on murder? So notwithstanding the correct, the correct instruction on second-degree murder, the imperfect instruction on manslaughter, which the jury came back to and which wasn't properly answered by the, with respect by, by the example, could have had the effect of a conclusion that would have been, well, this doesn't fit manslaughter as it was described to me, so it's got to be murder. I guess that's the worry on the distinction between the two. And thank you, Justice. The, I think the only thing I would have to say with respect to that is the answer did refer to causing bodily harm, um, the answer to the jury's question, as part with an objective foreseeability of bodily harm as part of um, the answer. And I don't think that the jury would automatically go to uh, manslaughter is only available if there's um, no intent to cause bodily harm. Um, you know, they were also instructed on the difference between culpable homicide and non-culpable culpable homicide. And I think they would have understood uh, that, yeah, so long as it didn't fit within, sorry, so long as um, the mens rea for second degree murder wasn't appropriate, didn't fit Mr. Pope, or they were satisfied that that mens rea was, was not met, uh, that they should convict for manslaughter. Can I see, Ms. Sullivan, if I understand your argument, because you started by talking about the two contextual facts. Firstly, the nature of the defense that was advanced, uh, that uh, that uh, it hadn't been proved that uh, the accused was the stabber. And then secondly, the nature of the injury, the nature of the unlawful act, a stabbing that results in an 11 centimeter wound. I gather what you're saying is that the nature of the unlawful act, yes, the words that should have been in box four were missing, but it's the nature of the unlawful act is such that the pathway uh, to acquitting uh, or to a fi finding manslaughter, even though those words were missing, really wasn't there. Uh, and so, uh, yes, the words were missing, but it isn't really a problem at the end of the day. Is that really what you're saying? Exactly. Um, you know, the words are missing, but given that, you know, we have the instructions for the proper intents for, for murder is in boxes 3A and 4A. Um, also, the mens rea for objective, uh, sorry, the objective mens rea for manslaughter was missing from the instructions. But given we had a stabbing here to the torso, that resulted in 11 centimeter deep stab wound. Um, you know, you can't stab somebody and not have an objective foreseeability of bodily harm that's be neither trivial nor transitory. Is that a is that a, a proviso answer to Justice Jamal, or is that something else? Uh, It may be both. I think it explains why um, the objective fault element for manslaughter was missing from the instructions. And it, it could also work with respect, to, be appropriate for the proviso as well. So no jury properly instructed here could have convicted of manslaughter. There was only one result. In other words, it's a foregone conclusion. Regardless of any error, and regardless of the jury's question that they don't understand the difference, it's a foregone conclusion that the nature of the act was such that no jury acting reasonably could have done anything else other than convicted murder. Is that your position? Uh, no, uh, Justice Maldaver. It's not a proviso argument then. Because I didn't hear you objecting to manslaughter being left, not you. I didn't hear the Crown objecting to leaving manslaughter. So if they left it, it must have been open. 
And if it was open, it had, they had to get instructed properly. So if they weren't given the proper instructions, the only basis that you can go back on, it seems to me, is either that the case was so overwhelming or that the error was harmless. I guess we'd be suggesting, you know, it was a strong case with respect to who stabbed uh, Mr. Collins. And I guess we'd be trying to argue that the error was was harmless in a sense. Um, manslaughter was definitely available to the jury. The jury could have convicted Mr. Pope of manslaughter based on, you know, um, stabbing the accused without intent to kill him or to cause bodily harm that was likely to cause death. But they chose not to do so. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm wondering if uh, uh, the, the Crown not being capable of um, seeing the future, you didn't know what uh, Randy Piercy, as defense counsel, what his line was going to be, whether it was going to be uh, somebody stabbed this guy, but it wasn't my client, or, uh, yeah, my client stabbed him, but it was in circumstances which would, would limit the culpability. I mean... Uh, I mean, you don't know until the trial starts, presumably. In most cases, yes, Justice Rowe, that would be correct. And, and identity was very much a live trial, a live issue in this trial. Was the Crown was calling evidence in relation to fingerprint evidence, DNA evidence, photo lineups, etc. Um. We would, you know, we we would say that the the answer to the jury's question was comprehensive. Again, I've I've already stated that the example was a, an example of unlawful act manslaughter. It's one recommended by counsel. Um, as we've sort of addressed many of the issues here with respect to the questions, I guess the last uh, issue that my friend would have raised in his factum would have been the instructions on the after the fact uh, conduct evidence of flight. And again, we would submit, of course, um, a jury has to be properly but not perfectly instructed. There's no magic words that need to be read. Um, and in the instructions to the jury on the after the fact conduct evidence of flight, um, the trial judge essentially told the jury that flight meant nothing because the person could leave the scene for a legitimate reason. Um, the dissenting judge found that uh, it amounted to a limiting instruction. Um, but regardless of whether this court finds it was a limiting instruction or uh, whether it was just a caution in this case at the end of the day, it shouldn't matter because the appellant's evidence of flight Sorry, sorry. the evidence of flight was a very minor part of the Crown's case. Uh, we didn't rely on it uh, and say it was relevant in relation to proving murder versus manslaughter. Uh, nor, the, nor did the trial judge instruct the jury that flight was relevant in relation to the intent for murder versus manslaughter. Um, the trial judge in his instructions didn't even instruct the jury that the flight was relevant to the identity issue. So at the end of the day, there's no serious possibility that the instructions on flight could have caused or induced the jury um, to consider flight as being relevant to the intent for murder. And as in White, uh, the 2011 decision for the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, there was uh, no error in the after the fact evidence of flight um, that the curative proviso could not fix. It would have been... Uh, trivial or, or minor, and it could be fixed by the proviso. You know, in this case, Mr. Pope's counsel got the instructions he wanted. Um, and he, those instructions we submit was for a tactical decision that he made at trial about what defense to bring. And um, we submit pursuant to Callan that weight should be given to that. Um, and because of that, that the conviction for manslaughter uh, should be upheld. And 
those are essentially, you know, we are relying on our submissions in our written factum. And we are asking this court to overturn uh, Mr. The, overturn the Court of Appeals order for a new trial and to restore the conviction. Can I ask a last, Unless, can I ask a last question? Sorry, before you, I hear you're about to conclude. And just to, to make sure where we're at, you accept the, your colleague's submission that there was an inaccurate de- definition of manslaughter in box four? Reading box four alone, absolutely. Okay, good. There was an inaccurate definition, it, but when it was read in the context of everything else, I, I, I understand your argument. No Did, was there an, another independent, correct definition of manslaughter brought before the jury? Uh, the definition of manslaughter, which is the one that Mr. Uh, Pope's counsel chose, as, as I said in, in my factum, it wasn't perfect. Um, but when it was considered, it was. But when you considered it in context, the judge made very clear that the distinction between manslaughter and murder lies in the intent of the, of, uh, the party that. I understand, the but the, the the error in box four wasn't rectified, and and the jury comes with its question because the jury was uncertain as to the definition of manslaughter and with the with the answer and indeed with the help of the example that you rightly say was proposed or at least suggested by counsel did they get a correct a corrected definition of manslaughter because if not aren't we into the proviso? Uh, I have three seconds. Uh, in the answer, it says I'm guilty of manslaughter because he died of an injury he sustained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think my time ran out. Well, I, I'm, I'm a little confused, but I think it may be possible to provide clarity very quickly. Um, from my reading of your factum, it is your position that in the uh, wording of the jury charge, as opposed to the answer to the, putting aside for the moment the answer to the question from the jury, putting aside what was in the box four, but in the text that was read out by the judge and it was given to the jury, my understanding of your submission is that the definition of manslaughter was accurately stated there. Am I correct that that is your position? Yes when it comes to distinguishing manslaughter from murder, when it's considered in context, there was an accurate definition of unlawful act manslaughter. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Mark Grushi. Uh, Thank you, Justices. Um, I'll just start like my friend did with providing our basic assessment of the case. We're asking this court to uphold the Court of Appeals decision in Mr. Pope's matter to order a new trial. And we are asking so on the basis that it did not err in finding that the, I guess, cumulative impact of the various issues that occurred with the charge with box four, with the answer to the jury's question and so on, uh, could have impacted and confused the jury sufficiently to warrant a new trial. And we've also raised the issue of the absence of an appropriate and sufficient limiting instruction with respect to uh, the leaving the scene, the question of flight in the case. Firstly, with respect to the issue of the definition of manslaughter as it occurs in the various places in this particular trial, um, box four from the perspective of the respondent is critical. And the reason we submit to this court it is critical is that if the jury was utilizing the decision tree for the very purpose that it was created, and if they reasoned down through those boxes, by the time they got to box four, they would have found apparently on the face of the text given to them as jurors, 
that they could not find manslaughter as a verdict if they found an intention to cause bodily harm, which we submit to this court is a very serious error of law because certainly manslaughter can involve an intention to cause bodily harm. Given the structure of the decision tree as it was and the fact that the jury asked the very specific and explicit question looking for a quote better definition of manslaughter with some examples. The next issue arises with respect to the the answer to that. Uh, question. Before you leave the decision tree, as it seems you're about to, I follow your logic perfectly. If the jury started at box four and worked back towards box one, if they said, "Ah, is Mr. Pope?" Uh, uh, guilty of manslaughter by virtue of uh, coming within the meaning of four. Well, no. And then we have to go, is he, is he guilty of murder, which is sort of an odd thing. But no one starts with box four and works back to box one. I mean, that would be one of the most absurd things to imagine. People will start at box one and then proceed as far as they need to along the decision tree until they have made a decision? And did they not, in this instance, frankly never get to box four because they rendered their verdict on what was in boxes one, two, and three? Well, Justice, unfortunately, I don't think we can really know that in light of the secrecy of jury deliberations, but our concern that we submit is even if members of the jury in their deliberation process had answered in the negative to one, two, and three and found themselves in box four, they may have then found themselves in a situation where it appeared there was no verdict they could render consistent with facts they had found. And at that point, there's a risk that they artificially could be pushed back up the chain to box three because so manslaughter is not defined as something which is successful. Four and bounce back. They found. That's it. They went down one, two, three. Uh, not guilty, went to four, uh, we can't convict him of manslaughter, now we're going to convict him of murder? Question one first, did he intend to stab the deceased? If they, the answer to that was no, that he, that he stabbed him with a knife and intended to, then of course you go no further. So clearly they found that he intended to cause, and I mean anybody would realize bodily harm by stabbing someone. So that's, that's already there. If they didn't get past box one, uh, there would have been no question about, you know, tell us what the difference between murder and manslaughter is. They clearly did get past box one. They obviously found that he intended to cause bodily harm because they, he intended to stab this, the victim, so that when they get to box four, they're told, well, you can only find manslaughter if they, he didn't intend bodily harm. Well, I mean, that pr probably that's why they asked the question, a good question, and it was never answered. Yes, Justice, we agree. Um, and in fact, if the court looks at the actual answer to the question, which we included in our condensed book, um, we would submit there's a further aggravation of the problem found in the answer in the sense that, and this is at tab six of our condensed book, and I'm looking at the last page of tab six in describing uh, the manslaughter example going from page 144 over, uh, the justice at trial in, in articulating the definition said, you know, in, in illustration, uh, there was no intention to kill or cause bodily harm that I knew could result in death. And could is meaningfully distinct from likely to, in a subjective sense, result in death. And in fact, by stating that manslaughter required no intention to cause bodily harm that could result in death, that compounds the error as to the elements of manslaughter, because certainly manslaughter could involve the application of bodily harm that could result in death. So what could have happened? is the jurors could have found facts that should have supported the finding of manslaughter, yet by virtue of this example and box four in particular, have concluded they must, it must be murder. Your, your that is Go ahead and finish, sorry, pardon me. Go ahead and finish, sorry. 
that that's a, a major concern for us because it, it seems that the answer compounded, uh, particularly, this is just one example. I mean, we would suggest the fact that the example was uh, a pure accidental sort of example, for want of a better way of putting it, but it actually refers to there being no intention to cause bodily harm that he knew could result in death in respect of which I was reckless. So uh, when I looked at the, the actual record of the um, appellant, um, and specifically the discussions concerning what the example would be, and this is found at um, Record of the Appellant, Volume 3 of 3, Tab 26, at page 130. It, it isn't clear from the court's statement of the example that's going to be put to the jury that it was agreed upon that the statement that I knew could result in death and in respect to which I was reckless was going to be added as well. So we would suggest that the combination of that statement and the deficiency in box four could have created an artificial situation where facts found that should have been manslaughter were erroneously believed to be murder by the jury. Mr. Grushi, what I was going to ask you is that your, when your colleague, when she was asked whether there was an independent definition of manslaughter elsewhere in the, in the instructions, she said that there was... And then she said, um, in the context of the case, and I guess I, I, I was looking for whether there was a, an explicit correct definition of manslaughter that offset the error in box four. Is, is, what's your understanding? Did the, did the record include such a correct independent definition of manslaughter that offset this error in box four and and c- compounded as as you suggest uh, by the question and answer. Uh, just as I, I don't I don't think there is strictly speaking a correct independent definition of well, manslaughter. Well, where where is the error in it? Point point us to where the error is. And in I, I do not understand the majority in the court of appeal to have said that in the text. There was an error. Now you're telling us there is. I would be greatly uh, obliged to you if you would point us to the passage where that error is stated. Well, specifically, Justice Rowe, um, I would suggest box four is plainly an error with respect to the That was not my question. I said the text. Do you have an answer or don't you? Yes, Justice. Do you mean the text of the statements to the jury and the answer to the question? The charge to the jury. Yes. So, Justice, would the Justice consider the answer to the question a component of the charge? Other than the box and the answer to the question. Yes. Justice, I would think it was as if the definition of manslaughter was defined by what it wasn't. So if it isn't murder, it is manslaughter. And there didn't appear to be uh, a great deal of detail given. So, in other words, you cannot point us to a passage which was erroneous in the jury charge, but you say to us we should look to the box for and the answer to the question from the jury. Is that your position? Yes, Justice. You can't can't point Um, us to one because they were never told what the intent for manslaughter is. That's why you can't find it, which brings us back to the real problem here. Is there an error? Mr. Grouchy, what should we do with uh, two uh, extracts of the, of the instructions, not the box, the instructions uh, referred to by the dissenting judge in paragraph 49 and in paragraph 52? In paragraph 52, these are the opening instructions. And uh, it was in, they were given in the context of distinguishing manslaughter and murder. And in paragraph 49, this is a portion to the jury charge which addressed by exclusion the essential components of manslaughter. What, what do you say on that? Was the dissenting judge totally wrong? Justice, I think that the dissenting judge was perhaps a bit too um, expansive in how to correct the problem. I know in looking at some of the cases that have been submitted, it seems I would suggest to this court that when the facts in a case are not as open as some of the facts here were insofar as the question of manslaughter or murder is concerned, then this court has found that less precision with the definition of manslaughter is necessary. 
but as my friend has pointed out, all the issues were alive in this case. So specifically, for instance, I'm thinking of a case that appears in my friend's authorities called uh, Young, which was dealing with the question of intoxication, negative intent, as opposed to the issue of foreseeability of harm and the action itself. Uh, I think in a scenario such as this, uh, the definition of manslaughter required more than appears in the original charge. Could I take you to paragraph 58 of the written instruction, and perhaps you could tell us whether there's any error there. It's at page 42 of the uh, paragraph 58. Just I need to find that in my tabs. What, what page was that, Justice? I'm sorry. I have it extracted, but it's page 42. It Thank seems you. to be record page 42, paragraph 58 you, of the written instruction. Yes, Justice, and, and the question was on that paragraph? Well, is there an error? Do you, do you assert an error in that paragraph? Justice, when I look at that uh, paragraph, uh, to my mind, Justice, uh, to submit to the court, uh, that appears to be the definition of murder, as opposed to manslaughter. Um, that's, that's a reference to the knowledge and the necessity for subjective foresight of the likelihood of death as a result of the action. So it's subjective likelihood as opposed to objective possibility or something could be impossible. It's likelihood. So insofar as murder goes, Justice, with respect to that paragraph, uh, I don't think there's an issue, but manslaughter is not explicitly defined. May I follow up? I have two questions for you. The first is, once the jury found that um, there was an unlawful act of stabbing, um, do you concede that the mens rea for manslaughter is established? If the jury found there was an unlawful act of stabbing, which caused the death, then yes, you would appear to be an unlawful act manslaughter. But it, it doesn't deal with the issue of intent, of course. It's, it's the act, certainly. Right. But once they say that there is an unlawful act, if they get through box one, as it were, and the, the unlawful act is the stabbing, and we have the causation and all the other evidence, you're conceding that that would be, um, as the Crown has suggested, the, the mens rea for manslaughter um, would exist in any event. Yes, and, and Justice, the issue would be that once the jury had found that and moves down through box four, they would be told by the decision tree that that verdict was impossible. Um, well, we can talk about that in a minute, but okay, so that's the answer to my first question. And my second question relates to the answer to the question. And it comes back to the role, I guess, of counsel in respect of jury charges. And you both cite the relevant authorities. But I'm wondering if there's a difference that we should be taking in terms of what the role of counsel is. Because there's a spectrum of behavior that, that happens in, in, in uh, um, the give and take on jury instructions. One is if, for example, counsel just understands that the judge is going to give th that charge or whatever and, and kind of um, just accepts it or maybe even argues and helps even though they don't think that that should be left, they still help. But on the other side of the spectrum, not just the not saying anything, so that's on one side, but then on the other side of the spectrum is the active engagement by counsel of putting forward um, the answer to a question. Now, we, um, I think this uh, stands as a, a bit of a, a cautionary tale about the providing of examples, uh, even though requested by juries. Um, but in terms of the answers to the question and the importance that we place on the answers to the questions, um, what do we do when the spectrum of conduct is that this came from the defense? This came from the defense maybe wanting to play for a no-stabbing um, kind of uh, analysis rather than what the intent was on stabbing. But what do we do with that, that this is in there for the reason that the defense wanted this example put forward? 
And, and other things, but my, my focus is on the answer to the question. Justice, I would suggest to the court that when any counsel um, makes a submission that results in a serious error of law on a core issue in a trial, such as the elements of an offense, uh, that I don't think it would be fair or just to say that the error of law, uh, simply because it was produced as a result of the interaction with counsel, would stand. I think there's plenty of instances where the issue is more debatable than you would see in this case about whether a particular instruction should happen or about whether a particular summary of evidence should occur and so forth. But from our perspective, when the issue goes to central concerns, such as the elements of manslaughter in a disputed live issue murder trial, I would suggest to this court that the submissions of counsel cannot usurp the role of the trial judge in ensuring that that is correct. Otherwise, um, we'd be letting the lawyers overrun the law. Well, and you, that's, my, that's my submission. All right. And I understand it's the ultimate responsibility of the trial judge to make sure there is no error of law. But is there an error of law in, the, in this question? Or is the example just um, potentially confusing because it doesn't address... Um, the uh, the nub of the issue, which is what's what's the intent for second degree and what's the intent for manslaughter? Justice, uh, with respect to the answer to the question uh, found at tab 6, 144 and 145, when the justice is articulating what manslaughter is and explaining it to the jury, uh, the justice did say, and this is at page 134, uh, there was no intention to kill or cause bodily harm that I knew could result in death, and in respect of which I was reckless. Uh, we would submit to the court that is an error in law. Because when the justice says uh, to cause bodily harm that I knew could result in death, the justice is actually potentially describing manslaughter. But the example is not something that allows for that to be the case. So the definition of manslaughter has been unduly narrowed. So I think the question itself was the answer compounded and was an error law alone. Can I take so, you to paragraph 26 of Justice um, Welsh's majority reasons? Because I think, with respect, she answers the questions put to you by my colleague in that passage that cites Creighton. Paragraph 26 of Justice Welsh's reasons. Have you got that? It's at page 170 of the appeal book. One moment, Justice. I apologize. Yes, Justice, one second. I'm just opening it. I have it, Justice Mulvaber. Thank you. All right, you. so let's just look at it quickly. That concern is particularly relevant in respect of offenses such as manslaughter, which may be committed in a wide variety of circumstances from, quotes, an unintentional killing well, committing a minor offense, quotes, too, and this is quoting right from Creighton, an unintentional killing where the circumstances indicate an awareness of risk of death just short of what would be required to infer the intent required for murder. And then go on. An example too similar to the case at hand may interfere with the jury's independence, and one too far removed may be of little value or may result in confusion. It seems to me that the second aspect of what Justice, Chief Justice McLaughlin was talking about, uh, <clears throat> an unintentional claim where the circumstances indicate awareness of risk of death, just short of what would be required to infer the intent for murder, that was never put to this jury, number one. And number two, the example falls right in the last part of her quote because the example had nothing to do with this case, and it could only lead to confusion. Yes, Justice, we agree, um, and thank you for the example. I mean, our, our concern, of course, is it, it, there's a real risk we submit that if the jury concluded that there was, in fact, a stabbing, that manslaughter was not open to them, which would be incorrect to a severe degree, because certainly a stabbing could be a manslaughter case. Um, in fact, in the discussions on the charge, um, Mr. Piercy, if the court goes back to the appellant's record, actually spoke to the court about that in the charge, showing that that issue was alive in his mind. So it's not as if there's evidence in the record that the defense abandoned that position. 
Instead, it seems they took a, a general reasonable doubt argument position. So I, I just put that there because my friend has emphasized the tactical aspect of the scenario, and we don't think and we submit to this court that there doesn't appear to be a logical tactical uh, aspect to this at all. Yeah, I, I have to tell you that in the, in the context of the facts of this case, um, I mean, I'm not the trier of fact here, but manslaughter seems to me to be a very unusual verdict. This was, for those of us who think in, in imperial terms rather than metric, this is a four-and-a-half-inch wound. Right? It's four-and-a-half inches and, and, and an inch wide. He must have stuck the knife in right up to the hilt. And, and the notion that this was uh, somehow... Uh, more consistent with um, causing harm but without any realistic expectation of death as opposed to uh, putting the the victim in mortal peril is um, sort of far-fetched. Justice, on that, I know there's material that was submitted in our uh, response referring to the actual length of the knife that would be required to create that wound, but when one considers the chaos that was unfolding in the facts uh, when assessing whether manslaughter was a possible verdict, um, one could, for instance, and again, the, no one sees the actual knife, no one sees the stabbing. It's a, it's a confused situation. But when one visualizes what is possible, a person, for instance, could be stabbing in a certain degree of intensity towards someone who is also moving and striking at them. And that could produce an apparently deeper wound than was intended initially. So it wouldn't be the fall-on situation. It would be a combination of both. In the alternative, an individual in that scenario could have stabbed at another part of the body that wouldn't be lethal and missed. Uh, that also would be a manslaughter situation. This is all, of course, dependent on the chaos of the facts. Um, if we had clearer evidence, perhaps, as to what precisely happened, um, that would be different, but the reality is we would submit to this court, there's a fair bit of, of breath with respect to what could have happened, which is exactly what Justice Welch said in the decision about how the scenario itself called for and our respectful submission to the court, a clear definition of manslaughter. Justices, on that point, um, I would like to make a few comments about the uh, second aspect that we raised, which was the failure to provide the limiting instruction on the question of flight. Uh, our position on that, I think... Uh, I Sorry, just before you go there, just before you go there, what do you say about the curative proviso applying here? Justice, I would think that it cannot be said uh, that the error in question uh, was such that the verdict would have been undoubtedly the same. Um, in fact, I think it is possible, uh, as previously indicated, that a juror could have concluded that there was an intent to cause bodily harm, that to use the judge's, uh, justice's language in the question... That, that could have caused death, they could have thought that was the case and been confused into thinking that was murder, which means the, the error could have directly caused the conviction uh, as a matter of logic. So I don't think it could be said that the error would not have affected the verdict. And certainly uh, there was enough going on in the, in the chaos of that conflict uh, with all the issues inherent in any trial respecting uh, the witnesses and so forth and their testimony, that it cannot be said that the Crown's case for murder was overwhelming. Uh, in fact, uh, we would submit to this court uh, that this was a classic case where manslaughter was very much in play. Uh, and as a result, I would suggest to this court that it would not be appropriate to apply the curative proviso. I, I, I must say, I'd have to question your characterization of this as the classic case of manslaughter. I mean, this is a classic case of you got to prove my client did it. Classic case of manslaughter is, yes, there was a fight. Yes, my client was engaged but given the nature of the blow that was inflicted, there was no expectation that would have resulted in death. That's the classic manslaughter case. I think that's fair, Justice. Um, a, a part of where I'm, I guess I'm coming from on that would be how the, the, the defense apparently took the position that this was a, a pure reasonable doubt case from their perspective, as opposed to advancing a cogent, coherent defense theory. But I totally understand what, what uh, you mean, Justice Rowe. Uh, so I, I don't think it's, it's classic manslaughter in, in the, the very proper sense you characterized it. Uh, I, I would suggest to the court that it was an active, active manslaughter murder case, which required a good definition. Uh, justices, with respect to our, our, our point on the failure to provide the limiting instruction respecting uh, flight, 
though that issue does not appear to be in, in total analysis uh, as meaningful in its potential substantive impact as the instruction question that we have been uh, discussing. Uh, nonetheless, it would seem that the court was required to provide a limiting instruction respecting flight insofar as distinguishing between uh, intent and manslaughter, between manslaughter and murder was concerned, uh, simply because fleeing cannot represent probative value as to murder versus manslaughter in this context. And I believe that the Court of Appeal and dissent agreed with that position. Uh, but then indicated that the court's statement that there may have been or that there could have been a legitimate reason to flee. Our submission to this court is that stating there could have been a legitimate reason is not sufficient because, uh, frankly, if you're fleeing from the scene of a killing uh, because there has been a killing, irrespective of the intent level, you don't actually have a legitimate reason to flee. But that doesn't suggest uh, that you are a murderer versus a person who is guilty of manslaughter. So that that's really the issue. It shouldn't have been put to the jury. We would suggest that the issue of whether the the flight decision was legitimate was the question. It should have been more plainly stated that, in fact, there was no probative value, at least insofar as flight was concerned, on the intent question. Uh, we would suggest uh, to this court that that issue uh, considered, which we think is is plain, we would suggest to the court, that issue in conjunction with the issue with the instruction on manslaughter and its elements put together uh, further uh, aggravate uh, this case and demonstrate that it would be very dangerous not to respect the Court of Appeals finding uh, given what has happened. Because now there are two distinct problems, uh, one of which I would, I think, agree is more severe than the other. That is to say, uh, the definition of manslaughter. But nonetheless, there's another problem with respect to the question of flight. So now uh, the case has many problems. And in that context, though, I know Justice Welsh did not have to decide on the issue of the limiting instruction on flight. Uh, we would submit that this court consider it as well uh, on this appeal and in our response. Justice, I know I'm just about to run out of time. Uh, those are essentially our submissions. And barring any questions from the court, Thank you very much. Thank you, Justice. Ms. Sullivan, uh, reply? The only statement I would have in reply is that this was not a classic manslaughter case. Um, it was a situation where someone was, there was one stab wound to the abdomen, uh, but it was a situation where the accused didn't call any evidence. He, we have no evidence as to what his intent was, whether he my friend suggested if it was an intent to stab him somewhere else and accidentally stabbed him in the abdomen or whether he intended to stab him but didn't mean to kill him or cause him serious bodily harm and there was another um there was another motive to get the money back or what have you um and you know the wound was significant it was an 11 centimeter stab wound to the abdomen and as you know I think the court can take judicial notice. Uh, that's where many of our vital organs are. And the jury was allowed to, um, you know, infer that the accused of the natural consequences of his actions. And if that got them to that Mr. Pope had the subjective intent for murder, um, you know, that is appropriate. And, and manslaughter was defined vis-a-vis -vis murder. And uh, they just found he had the subjective intent for murder. Thank you. Ms. Sullivan, in light of the exchange between your colleague and the court on the whether there was an independent definition of manslaughter provided for the jury uh, to offset the error in box four, is there one to offset the error? You, you answered yeah. earlier about, well, in the context Oh, is there is there one is there one that <clears throat> offsets the error in box four? In the opening instructions and in the final instructions, manslaughter is defined in relation to um, the intent for murder, and that if he doesn't have the intent for murder, find they commit the unlawful act that causes death, then it's manslaughter. So I think it was throughout the instructions. It wasn't, uh, but it wasn't defined as in the in the sense of uh, a person could stab a person and uh, cause their death, but not intend to kill them and or cause serious bodily harm, and it could still be manslaughter. They didn't have that portion, but I don't think that's necessarily required. 
your reply? I guess so. Thank you. So I would ask um, Council to remain at our disposal. Please be seated. <clears throat> I would like to thank Council for your patience. The Court is uh, ready to render its decision. A majority of this Court, made of Justice Moldaver, Justice Karagatsanis, Justice Brown, Justice Jamal, and Justice Cassirer would dismiss the appeal, essentially for the reasons of the majority of the Court of Appeal. Whereas myself, Justice Cote, Justice Rowe, and Justice Martin would allow the appeal, essentially for the reasons of Justice Goodrich. The appeal is therefore dismissed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.